This poem starts with a quote from the Isa Upanishad. Upanishads are very, 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 very old spiritual teachings that come from the Vedas of India. And in a way, all other spiritual teachings are just a derivative of that, of those. This one says, this quote, This is full, that is full. From the full emerges the full. Fullness coming from fullness, fullness still remains. This line of sunlight traced to form is no secret. Love is not hidden, but exposed, vulnerable in leaf, twig, birth, death. Mothers, children, friendships, Announced from rooftop, basement, car horn, whisper. This line of sunlight, not born, will never die, appears and disappears in mystery and across pattern, patterns, patterning, never ceasing magic. The unborn does not deny appearances, only birth. And so the born is born from the unborn while remaining unborn. That's a quote from one of the um, most essential tantras, uh, spiritual transmissions of Tibetan Buddhism. The unborn does not deny appearances, only birth. And so the born is born from the unborn while remaining unborn. Somebody came into Sanzen and said, it's like there's nothing behind anything. And I said, there's nothing behind anything. Love is required to understand this unbirthing of reason's superstitious assumptions. The temptation of is and is not. Love is required to understand this unbirthing of reason's superstitious assumptions. The temptation of is and is not. This is about what our minds do. Yeah? You with me there? The seduction of beauty by because. The seduction of beauty by because, and even in failure, the tempest of flowers, golden light on fields, barking dog, dark night, proclaim the victory of unknowing. We're not doing something uh, foreign or exotic, although it has foreign forms. We're not doing something that is unrelated to our ordinary days and everyday happiness, frustrations, and desires. We're not doing something unrelated to a looming sense that the bottom will fall out of our life, of the world, and we're not sure which one will be first. We're not doing something unrelated to the unrelenting thought that someone or somewhere else might extinguish this hollow loneliness. Somewhere or someone might make this feeling go away, that I want to go away. What we're doing is not unrelated to where that thought takes us and where it leaves us. 
We're not doing something unrelated to the cautions, hesitations, pullbacks, and fears that accompany us even during the moments that are supposed to be exalted. Think of the last time you talked to a bride. I find it interesting that sometimes the, the, a moment that's supposed to be one of the most celebrated moments in many people's lives, the amount of anxiety that the bride and groom are often pervaded with is a strange contradiction about this human life. The amount of fear. We're not doing something unrelated to the sense that to love the world is impossible. To love the world as it is is impossible but I have to anyway. Because the alternative is costs too much. So what's being offered here, the relevance of it, the medicine of it can get obscured by the religious delivery system. I was thinking if someone were to walk in here who completely had no idea what was going on, they'd probably think this was a funeral. <laughs> and even though I'm wearing black and not smiling a whole lot, for me, this is much more like a festival than a solemn occasion. And it could be that for all of us. And we could just dance and we could just sing, and we could just have a good time because we could bring forth anything out of emptiness. You want love? We could bring forth love. That's the beauty of emptiness. Think about actually how profound it is. Let's say down the street there's a better retreat where what they're doing is fun and love. Because of emptiness, you feel like you do right now, you could go down to the street, go to that retreat full of, full of love and fun, just like that. The unborn does not deny appearances, it just denies birth. But probably because you're here, the gravity of your condition cannot just be danced around. And something in us wants to break. Something in us wants to give way, to be unconfined. It's easy to start thinking about spiritual life, the path as something I'm doing for me, but what if it's not quite like that? What if something is waiting for you to do what you need to do so that it can be born? So easy to assume, this is just about me, this is my project, this is my new project. I did CrossFit, now I'm doing Zen. It's going to be great. Post that. We accurately intuit there is a way to be freer, more ourselves and less in the right proportion. We accurately intuit our identities and self-images are at best yes and. Self-image is empty and utterly, completely constructed thing that abides nowhere. You couldn't even find it if you were to dissect your brain. And yet that unfindable, unlocatable, whether you were a scientist or a deep meditator, that thing causes so much misery. 
doing it right, I'm doing it the best. All different versions of that. Today I want to tell you a story. First of all, did you know that this was the elementary school library of the monastery? So probably in the past, there were kids in this room being read to, you know, kind of like. And Bodhidharma, the founder of Zen, his disciple, stood in the snow all night to prove his devotion and then severed his arm. <laughs> Can you see? Maybe, maybe I'll give some more backstory on that to, <laughs> tomorrow to those who aren't. So I'm going to read you a story. I want to tell you something of the story of, of Bodhidharma, but about the emperor and Bodhidharma. There is um, a koan in the Blue Cliff Record. It is, I believe, the first case. I uh, forget what it's called in that translation. Maybe Bodhidharma's vast emptiness. And as I think about this koan, I think this koan really de defines the Zen school. It what makes, it's, it's what makes Zen a unique offering among many spiritual traditions. The flavor of this. So I'm going to read the koan and then read you a story. So this is taking place in Tong Dynasty, China a time where Buddhism was flourishing through no separation of church and state, thousands and thousands of temples, grand monasteries that make Vegas hotels look like Motel 6. It was a big deal what was going on. There was a lot of Dharma, and there was no church separation between church and state. And so this is um, Emperor Wu. This is an, an emperor who... We're going to find out more about him, but at this point in the koan, he had already been practicing dharma to some extent. So this is just one encounter. Emperor Wu of Liang asked the great master Bodhidharma, what is the main point of this holy teaching? Again, Buddhism was not something tucked away in the corner of Klatskanai in China, but... Buddhism was something that was so widely celebrated, you couldn't turn your head without running into a golden Buddha at this point. And this person, Emperor Wu, is very much involved in the propagation of golden Buddhas. So he's asking this teacher who appeared. Now Bodhidharma, for those who don't know, if you look at that, it's the grumpy looking person on the scroll in that room over there. So in the, the hall, of receiving teachers. Emperor Wu asks, what is the main point of this holy teaching? And Bodhidharma replies, vast emptiness, nothing holy. And the emperor says, well, who are you standing in front of me? You're a spiritual teacher. And what do you mean by that? What do you represent? What is, what, what is this all about? Who are you standing in front of me? Asked the emperor. I do not know, said Bodhidharma. Now, if you think about the human condition, fear is the central texture of our existence. 
Fear is not the deepest thing, but it's almost the deepest thing in human beings. How often do we really admit that? Fear is a central feature of existence. The teachings say, if you believe you exist, there is fear. There's no two ways about it. How do we manage this fear that is central to existing? We pile on false certainties. We make up stories. We um, believe things we don't know to be true. We every day walk in some bizarre trust that things are just going to be okay. And miraculously, they often are. We live in a trance of certainty. People in doing deep zazen sometimes encounter just a deep, deep wells of anxiety, quivering, trembling fragility. That's progress. That's one of the deepest things. So Bodhidharma in our lineage is a person who has become this I do not know, has broken the trance of certainty no longer leaning on false knowing in order to cope. But we could at least practice this. I mentioned earlier, just say to yourself, whether you think it or whisper it, say it from the place it's true, I do not know. I do not know. then the contrast of all the false knowings becomes so much more clear. The people, I assume, what they're thinking, what they're doing. The judgments, the, the assumptions. The things I decided I didn't like, but how do I know I don't like that? A long time ago, I decided I disgust. Broccoli is disgusting. Who would eat broccoli without a pile of cheese on it? Today's broccoli was fabulous. I thought I knew what broccoli was like. So Bodhidharma says, I do not know, and invites us into that practice. The koan continues, the emperor didn't understand. Bodhidharma crossed the Yangtze River and went to the kingdom of Wei. Later, the emperor raised this matter with his advisor, Duke Ji. The advisor asked, your Majesty, do you know who that Indian sage was? No, I don't, said the Emperor. That was Avilokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, carrying the seal of the Buddha's heart-mind. The Emperor felt a sudden regret and said, send a messenger to call him back. Duke Ji told him, Your Majesty, even if everyone in the kingdom went after him, he wouldn't return. Linger with that for a second. There's a depth there. Even if everyone in the kingdom went after him, he wouldn't return. How many times do we ever really meet anything? So here's the, uh, the story about Emperor Wu. Emperor Wu had two unusual experiences that changed his life. These essentially inward events led him to certain achievements that are remembered today more than a millennium after his death. The first experience happened when his armies had to repel an invasion of horsemen from the northwest. 
The horsemen carried with them whatever they owned, and they weren't afraid to die. That's amazing. Think of that, the, the conviction. You can be so certain that your purpose is noble that that core of fear fades into the background. It's interesting. The horsemen carried with them whatever they owned, and they weren't afraid to die. The emperor had himself ascended to the throne in the standard way by overthrowing the previous weakened monarch, and he believed that he understood the riders. To steady his troops, he visited the front lines and sat in the firelight on a small hill. This is when the emperor had his first peculiar experience. Banners whipped loudly overhead, and the wind felt as though it were inside his chest, tearing and banging. Something of the desert's tedious immensity was conveyed to him. The wind cleansed him of any anxiety and also took away other things, the solidity of which he had never questioned before. It took away his august rank and his name. He stopped planning, and he also stopped thinking about the outcome of the battle. When everything he usually depended upon was gone, he knew immediately what to do. In the pre-dawn, just before the nomads liked to attack, he sent horsemen into the center of their camp and immediately pulled them back again. As the pursuit came, the center of his line kept falling back. The nomads rode into the vacuum he had opened, and he closed on them from both sides. After his return, while the ministers celebrated, the emperor went into the garden to be alone. Have you ever had a moment where you're in a group where something has happened that the group decided was the right thing to happen, and it's happened, and you're amidst this exuberance, and suddenly you just you don't understand why being on the right side is the right thing? While the ministers celebrated, the emperor went into the garden to be alone. On the hillside, he had felt quite certain that he was going to win. At that moment in the wind and the vast land, he was small and unimportant. And this sense of his unimportance allowed him to be clear about what needed to be done. Being important now seemed to him to be just a prejudice that confined him. Now, one of the descriptions of why it often sucks to be a human being, according to Buddhism, is the eight worldly winds. They're pairs of attachments, and one of the pairs of attachments is attachment to being known, to being seen, and the aversion to not being known, to not being seen. Related to that is the attachment to being seen as one of the good ones, one of the cool ones, the sexy ones, the attractive ones, and aversion to being seen as one who's not. Being important now seemed to him to be just a prejudice that confined him. Once he forgot about having a special point to his life, he felt remarkably free for an emperor. There were some complications. On certain days, he considered his leave, leaving his room, but couldn't find a reason to. He still gave interviews at court before dawn, but was sometimes set by a sense of unreality. Shedding his old beliefs had not been so hard. He hadn't done anything to achieve his new way of seeing things. It was a gift from wind and war. You know, sometimes it just happens to people that they have openings. 
That can be pretty frustrating for those of us who have to do the work, it seems. But some people don't. It just happens. The mythology is that they've practiced for lifetimes, and then they order a Slurpee and the universe collapses. <laughs> but for most of us, we can, I suppose you could just wait around for something like that to happen, but you don't know that the readiness has been created. Shedding his old beliefs had not been so hard. He hadn't done anything to achieve his new way of seeing things. It was a gift from wind and war. I have a friend who, upon giving birth to her first child, basically had a Kensho. So we're not, we're not exempt from the possibility. Having opinions about life, ideas about being an emperor, about his own dignity and the motives of his ministers, having to dislike this person and admire that one, pained him now. He could feel these familiar attitudes as walls crowding around him. Yet some understanding, he was certain, eluded him. He did what was necessary out of duty and didn't mourn his old certainties, but he lacked delight. So he had become detached. He had seen through the facade of his political life, his esteemed role. He was no longer caught up with me, the emperor, the great one, worthy of adoration. But that left him in a, a space that was not quite bright. It was just a space. He did what was necessary out of duty and didn't mourn his old certainties, but he lacked delight. There had to be more to life than the freedom of pointlessness. It's a good place to be, and you might have to arrive there, but it's not the destination. The emperor sought hints from the world. He noticed that he had remorse about the murders involved in his ascent to the throne. His qualms, as he thought of them, were the beginning of a new curiosity about his own life. As certainty melts, some of the righteousness that let us not feel the impact of what we have done, those things come up. In the mornings, we do the, the Gatha of Atonement during service, and really that's just a recognition of what happens when you do session. You melt certainties, the heart opens, things bubble up. It's not a mistake. His qualms, as he thought of them, were the beginning of a new curiosity about his own life. At the same time, he began to entertain famous teachers who passed through. Sometimes they were helpful. They usually praised him and gave carefully bland advice, often involving diets. Sometimes it was even good advice. But the question he had was something like a feeling, a mingling of excitement and uneasiness hard to formulate, and advice didn't seem to touch it. I think some of you can relate to that. You come into Sanzen and you say, I don't have a question, but here I am. And you kind of close your eyes and think, what's my problem? I'm going to present my problem. You don't need a problem to come into Sanzen. Then the emperor heard of a sage from India. The man was himself a legend. It was said that it had taken him three years to make his way over the seas. The emperor knew nothing about the sea, but he imagined waves as the grass of the steppes in a high wind. He tried thinking of China as an ocean that he passed through, and nomads as pirates with horses. Though his own obligations prevented him from undertaking such journeys, 
He respected this kind of solitary accomplishment. When the sage arrived at court, he turned out to be a genuine barbarian, red hair, blue eyes, dressed in rags. So this is, this is China. There wasn't a lot of exposure to those who were not Chinese. And I don't know if the Mongol invasions had started happening at this part, but basically there was a lot of xenophobia. Right? Racism did not begin with America. But it's all the more profound that this person went to this country where he could be looked upon as such a being. He turned out to be a genuine barbarian, red hair, blue eyes, dressed in rags. So that's like showing up to like the Hefner mansion wearing a t-shirt and like overalls, something like that. This is an imperial palace. His name was Bodhidharma, which is not really a personal name, just some sort of title in Sanskrit. The clothes of the ministers were gorgeous, and in the red and gold audience room of the visitor, excuse me, and in the red and gold audience room, the visitor managed to seem nondescript, which was an achievement for, an, for a barbarian. He didn't have the air of one deprived or poor. The main contrast with the ministers was not in how he dressed. In a place where he wanted something, excuse me, in a place where everyone wanted something, he did not. He didn't have the air of one deprived or poor. The main contrast with the ministers was not in how he dressed. In a place where everyone wanted something, he did not. The minister's rank was displayed by differences in insignia and dress. The sage made no claims about rank. He didn't either push himself forward into the emperor's notice or pull himself back into hiding. He stood quietly, and his presence affected the court until everyone fell silent. The emperor noticed that his own thoughts were becoming simple. He remembered the taste of vegetable soup. Even the most elegant palace, thought the emperor, is also a burden. Then he stood up as if to approach the visitor's stillness. He wanted to find a road deeper into his own life and asked. To be able to come to the point where we can really ask where we can really contact the longing that is in us, where we can thaw enough that we can realize we don't have it together because it's not possible to. We don't have it together because it's not possible to. This is the place the emperor is in. I funded many monasteries what merit have I earned? No merit, said Bodhidharma. With a jolt, the emperor thought, here is someone who knows. It's not about building things up. It's about undoing everything. He realized that he had fallen into being an emperor again and underestimated the sage and perhaps himself. He had not dared to ask a question important to his own life. The memory of a hillside in a battle rose up in him. He had no language for what he had undergone. He had had no one to stand behind him and say, yes, I see it too. Now the emperor felt the man's presence as a kind of sympathy, which he longed to explore. Sometimes in this practice, especially when we're not in session, we start to feel alienated from those who aren't really being as honest as we are falling into. 
we're falling into a deeper honesty about what life is, and we feel this strange distance from people who still can just pretend like everything is circus, circus. Now the emperor felt the man's presence as a kind of sympathy, which he longed to explore. So he asked, what is the main point of this holy teaching? Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness, nothing holy. Again, the quiet voice that didn't ask to be heard. The emperor's senses became keen. It was as if the two men were sitting together on a bench in a temple garden with all the time in the world. He wanted to reach the other man's mind, or perhaps go deeper into his own mind. An odd thought came to him. If I'm an emperor, how can I also be a person? You could fill in the blank with whatever, whatever roles you might identify with. If I'm a mother, how can I also be a person? Whatever it may be. An odd thought came to him, so he asked, Who are you standing in front of me? It wasn't really a challenge, like, Who are you? How dare you come in here? Or, What are you made of? It was a genuine curiosity. Who are you standing in front of me? I do not know, said Bodhidharma. This statement stopped the emperor completely. He began to feel a delightful insubstantiality. The emperor's sadness over the shameful things he had done fell away. It fell into that spaciousness. The emperor's worry over when more attacks would come from the north also disappeared. Inside himself, he couldn't find an emperor. He felt capable of many things, but not quite yet. The words, I don't know, I don't know, stuck in his head like a line from a song. That's a description of the invitation for us and what I'm suggesting. Let those lines, not like a mantra, let it be a refrain that you feel. I don't know. I don't know. For a moment he walked alone and was content. Around him emptiness flowed in all directions. Then as he looked about, the palace returned and the court officials started to whisper to each other. He was fascinated by how clear everything was. Someone else spoke, and Bodhidharma began to withdraw, as if he were himself a spell that had been lifted. If he had stayed, I don't know, might have lost its power. In the court, only one person noted his going. Later, the emperor raised this matter with his advisor, Duke Ji. The advisor asked, Your Majesty, do you know who that Indian sage was? No, I don't, said the emperor realizing how much emperors take for granted. That was Avilokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, carrying the seal of the Buddha's heart and mind. The emperor felt a sudden regret and said, send a messenger to call him back. You know, the Japanese have a saying, um, one chance, one encounter. One meeting, one encounter. And we actually never know if we were to meet someone like Bodhidharma. And that could be the young lady scanning your groceries at Whole Foods. If we were to meet someone like that and we were inattentive or we took the opportunity lightly, next day you get on a plane. 
Duke Ji told him, Your Majesty, even if everyone in the kingdom went after him, he wouldn't return. I met him but didn't meet him, said the emperor, and eventually those words were put on his grave. This was his way of expressing his, I don't know. That in itself is, is a koan worth, worth its time. I met him but didn't meet him. Afterward, the emperor noticed more about his own life. He noticed that when he didn't expect people to please him, he enjoyed seeing them. That seemed to be a clue. He found that he enjoyed building temples. It wasn't a matter of duty. Then he went further. The emperor gave himself up to temples as a servant, seeking inward freedom in an exterior narrowness and forgetting how to be an emperor. Now think about just how radical that is. Only a person of profound spirituality could do such a thing. To give up their position, their comforts, who knows what an emperor had available to him at that time. Because he valued being free of the ego to that degree. At such times he felt full of love. He dug ditches and planted gardens. He wasn't an emperor or a murderer. The work took away his sense of himself. Like the Indian sage, he didn't know who he was and was free until he became himself again. That's how it goes. When the time's right, you will become yourself again. It will surprise even you. And then you return to the fertile. People worry about this, so that's why I said that. The strategy was also an excellent fundraising device for the temples since the game was that his ministers had to ransom him with huge gifts. And he enjoyed tormenting his ministers in this mild way. After he was ransomed, he would live contentedly in the palace for a while until a feeling of suffocation became once more unendurable and he would give himself up to a temple and be a gardener once more. Bodhidharma went away without carrying even one opinion about the emperor and sat for nine years in the mountains facing a cliff. I don't know, continues to murmur century after century. People wait and live inside questions. Mistakes lead through doors. The idea that there is a wisdom that the universe just gives to you without reference to teachers or scriptures came from Bodhidharma down to the present. All of this, all of this is just invitation. It's simply invitation. Dogen Zenji put it this way, when the truth fills your body and mind, you realize something is missing. So our discouragement can be that truth. Our tedium can be that truth. A sense of boredom can be that truth. When the truth fills your body and mind, you realize something is missing. 
It's an invitation because dissatisfaction with your experience can take you deeper or it can return you to the bustling marketplace looking for the next hit. Now, I'm not looking out at anybody and assuming your life is like that. But dissatisfaction with our experience encountering the tedium of knowing, the small chamber of certainty, it can take us deeper into this invitation or it can send us back out into the mall directory. For what it's worth, I'll share something that Hungjir said about this I don't know mind. This is called the acupuncture needle of Zazen. Yeah, I don't know much about acupuncture. Some of you probably do. But I have the sense that you don't randomly stick a pin in just any point. No. Not a good idea. It's precise. It's you know exactly where the illness lies if you're qualified. And you put the pin right in that point. So this is Hongzhi's writing, which later Dogen said, this is the only thing written in China for the last 500 years that really gets what Zazen is. So, <laughs> Dogen was kind of crabby. The essential function of all Buddhas, the functional essence of all ancestors, is to know without touching things and illuminate without encountering objects. Knowing without touching things, this knowledge is innately subtle. Illuminating without encountering objects, this illumination is innately miraculous. The knowledge innately subtle has never engaged in discriminative thinking. The illumination innately miraculous has never displayed the slightest identification. Never engaging in discriminating thinking, this knowledge is rare without match. Never displaying the most minute identification, this illumination is complete without grasping. The water is clear right down to the bottom, fish lazily swim on. The sky is vast without ends, birds fly far into the distance. The whole world is awake. This whole moment is awake. There's nothing for mind to do. Sights, sounds, feelings, no exertion, no effort. There's no doer of these functions. Check. Do you have any actual experience of the one who listens to these words? Do you actually have any experience of the one who feels the elbow, the hand, the heart? This is an invitation. Is there an actual experience at this moment of one who sees colors, who thinks thoughts? All is self-revealing, void and clear, without exerting power of mind.
its knowledge is rare without match, never displaying the most minute identification. This illumination is complete without grasping. And it's complete whether we grasp it or not. Thoughts can't do meditation. Who is meditating? A thought can't do meditation. Thoughts are 100% immersed in themselves. Feelings can't do meditation. Feelings are 100% immersed in themselves. Sights, sounds, touches, smells can't do meditation. They are 100% immersed in themselves. What is left? What evidence is there for somebody inside there struggling? What evidence? A thought can't suffer. It's just a thought. So what's going on? I don't know. It's a good place to start. I do think the package of the tradition can sometimes obscure the the beauty, the light that's within it. It's just a relative world issue. Life is love or trying to get back to it. You could substitute any, any word for love. love. Love is not love. That's just a word. Life is love or trying to get back to it. And at times it seems impossible to be in gratitude for the life and world we're given, but it seems like that's what's asked. Why do we keep trying? Life is gratitude or trying to get back to it. So, if this is relevant to you, personally, ignore this kind of stuff. Feel the the heart of what we're doing here. Know, as I think you do know, how relevant this is for you. Because life is spaciousness or trying to get back to it. And everything testifies to that fact, every one, every being. It's clear.